First Corinthians chapter 11 for our reading, please. And we'll commence at verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoureth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, dishonoureth her head, for that is even all one, as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power in her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Judging yourselves, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom neither the churches of God. Now that's our reading, and it is the word of God, and we trust that God will bless his word as we've read it together. Now when we come to the subject of headship and the expression of it and the symbolism involved in this chapter as headship is expressed in a local church, we must understand this, that this issue of head covering in a local church is a very important symbol. And it's an important symbol in a chapter of important symbols. And if you are not willing to engage with the symbolism in the first part of the chapter, then you will find it, I think, perhaps inconsistent to engage with the symbolism that takes place in the second part of the chapter in connection with the Lord's Supper. So this is a chapter of symbols. And I know it's a contentious issue for many Christians in different churches when they come to this passage of Scripture and seek to understand its meaning. And if you start from a position whereby you say, well, this passage obviously doesn't mean that a woman has to cover her head and a man has not to cover her head, if you start from that point, as many do, when I was reading uh, some very some articles and listening to some ministry from different people on the subject, I discovered that many start from that point and say, well, obviously that should not be practised today. It was cultural, it was colloquial even, and it is old-fashioned. But if you start there, then you'll find this passage of Scripture very, very difficult to understand. In fact, some of the commentators who in so many other parts of Scripture 
are so detailed and exact in their interpretation of Scripture. What I found was this, when they come to this section, they simply gloss over it and they dismiss it and they don't apply the same hermeneutical analysis to this section of Scripture as to the others round about it. And they seem to just bypass it. We don't want to bypass it this evening. I want to suggest to you, and I trust you'll agree with me as we come to the end of our study, that this section is an intrinsic and an important part of the Apostles' Doctrine that we ought to observe today, and not just for those who heard this letter read back in Corinth. Now we'll see that as we go on. It's important. It's important not only that we do this, but it's important that we understand why we do this that we do it intentionally, that we do it spiritually, and that we do it as unto the Lord. Not empty ritual, not habit born of an upbringing, not the concept of wearing a particular form of headgear or wearing a particular form of clothing because you're going to church, but rather understanding the significance of the man when the church gathers having his head uncovered and the sister having her head covered and the spiritual significance of that symbolism. And as we understand the significance, then the issue as to whether we uncover our head or cover our head becomes less an issue, I would think, as we approach this. Now we're going to get down the verses and learn what Paul has to say about this subject. Now notice verse number 2, which is where the little section begins. He says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. Now you come to this chapter, and I said earlier that the chapter is a chapter of symbols, and it divides into two. One section is about headship, and the second section is about the Lord's Supper. And here he is praising the Christians at Corinth. He's praising them in the first half of the chapter, whereas when he comes to the second half of the chapter, he cannot praise them. He praises them in the first half of the chapter, we're going to see, because there are two reasons given. Number one, they remembered him in all things. And number two, they were keeping the ordinances as they were delivered by the Apostle Paul. So there are two reasons given why Paul says, I praise you. Now, when you come to the second part of the chapter, you find this, that there are a few reasons why he could not praise them in relation to the Lord's Supper. Their behavior was such and the, the practice was such amongst them that it was scandalous. In fact, it was so scandalous they would have been better not being there or, or doing what they were doing because it wasn't beneficial, but harmful, destructive and dishonoring to the Lord. So he says, I cannot praise you about the Lord's Supper, but I want to praise you about this issue of head covering. Number one, you remember me in all things. Now, Paul appreciated the assemblies that did not turn their back upon him, for many did. Do not think that Paul was universally popular as he taught the truth of God, even amongst assemblies that he had been instrumental in their formation and initial growth when he revisited them or when his doctrine was being practiced by them, his popularity very often diminished. 
In fact, at the end of his life, it would appear that he was very unpopular, and he's remained unpopular amongst many Christians even to today. He says, I want to thank you, I want to praise you, you haven't forgotten me, you remember me in all things. And then he says this, and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. The ordinances, the traditions. Now, when we come to the idea of tradition, we must not think that he's speaking about unbiblical or man-made issues, but rather he's speaking about teaching, about doctrine that he has communicated to the church and that they are practising. He's communicated it with all the authority of God given to him as an apostle. They've taken it and they are now practising it. Now, there are 13 occurrences of the word tradition in the New Testament, that word that's translated in the authorised version as ordinances. And if you follow the word through, you find this. In Matthew 15 and verse 3, the word occurs, and there the Pharisees are asking the Lord Jesus why his disciples didn't follow the tradition of the elders. So he speaks about the tradition of the elders. In Mark 7 and verse 3, he refers to the Pharisees washing before they were eating, and that was a tradition of the Pharisees. In each of the remaining six gospel occurrences, the Lord Jesus uses the word as he condemns Jewish tradition. But then when you come on, you find this in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 14, he mentions traditions in relation to his ancestral traditions. Then you come to Colossians 2 and verse 8, another mention of the word, and it says this, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. And there he speaks about the traditions of men. Now that is distinct from apostolic tradition. The traditions of men were man-made, those that had their source and authority in men alone. Paul is not speaking about that type of thing. And we must draw a distinction between the two. Paul is speaking about that which was inspired of God, given by God, communicated through apostles, and had all the divine authority behind it. Now, there is quite a difference between the two. Traditions of men and traditions received ultimately from God. The difference is in the authority that lies within them. Now, it may well be that you have traditions. It may well be you have practices, and they're not wrong. They may even be healthy, good things to do. It may well be that your local church has a certain way of doing things, and it's always been done that way, and there's no reason to change. It's a perfectly valid, perfectly good thing to do, perfectly good tradition to have. But when you take that and give it the authority of apostolic tradition, that's where the mistake comes in. When you say, no, this is the way it has to be, this is the only way it can be, and there mustn't be any alteration to that, you're actually taking a man-made tradition and giving it the authority of an apostolic tradition. And that's a mistake to make. So where do we find apostolic traditions? We find them in the Bible. And so what we find is this. We must draw a distinction, not to say that our traditions which we've created and which suit our culture and lifestyle and practice are wrong. 
but simply to say that they don't carry the authority that Scripture does, which incorporates apostolic tradition. He says, I want to praise you. You are keeping these traditions. Now, there are three occurrences then left out of the 13. We've mentioned 10. And one is verse 2 of chapter 11. Then you read again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. So he says, here's how you got these traditions. You either got them from oral teaching by the apostles or epistles that came from the apostles. So the apostles either wrote to you with them or they came and taught you them personally. That's where you got them from. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6, he says this, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourself from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us. Of us. So he says, if someone will not accept the authority of these instructions of this apostolic tradition and live in accordance with them, he will be living out of step with the other believers. He will be walking disorderly. Distance yourself from such a Christian. So we see what he means when he's speaking about traditions, ordinances in verse 2. He says, I praise you. You are keeping them as I delivered them to you. And that's important right at the beginning. Because in this issue of headship and head covering, there very often is leveled this accusation. This is just a brethren tradition. This is a tradition that no other churches practice, or very few. And that's fair comment. But it's not a brethren tradition. It's not a man-made tradition. It is an apostolic tradition. And there's the difference. This section of scripture carries the weight of divine authority, not the authority simple of some part of the church, some denomination, some movement, some section of local churches in the world today. It's not the creation of brethren. It's an apostolic instruction. Now, I'm labouring that because that's a very important distinction to make. And please don't think that people only have to cover their heads when they go to a brethren church. Or, or men must have uncovered heads only when they go to a brethren church. No one else cares. So surely the brethren are in a minority. And if they're in such a small, tiny minority, they can't be right. And therefore, let's just go with the majority. Well, that's never a good approach to anything. Rather than worry about other folks, let's just concentrate on what Scripture says. And find their authority in the word of God, rather than in the practice of other churches. Now notice verse 3 then, he's going to instruct us about this principle, a universal principle, and then we'll see its application and its demonstration in a local church. Verse 3, but I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Now he wants them to know. He's not correcting 
their behaviour. He does that in connection with the Lord's Supper. He praises them that they're doing it, but he wants them to know why. He wants them to know the significance of it. Now, there's quite a lot of younger sisters here and younger brethren here as well. And it is a good thing to understand why you practice what you do. Not just to do it, there is value in doing it, even sometimes when you don't understand why, out of respect for others and out of simple obedience. But there is a greater value in understanding why am I doing this and therefore doing it out of a pure motive and doing it as unto the Lord, intelligently as unto the Lord. And that applies to so many things in our Christian life, not just this issue. But in this issue, it's the same. He says, I want you to know, ignorance is not bliss when you come to Christian matters. Ignorance is something that precedes an education and then a knowledge. And we all start from a point of ignorance, but we shouldn't be content to stay there. We should want to learn. We should want to know. We should want to understand so that we can not be full of knowledge, but intelligently practice what the Bible says. Not just because we're told, but because we understand for ourselves. He says, I would have you know. So what does he want them to know? He wants them to know, first of all, that the head of every man is Christ. Notice the word head as it appears there. And notice it says the head. The head. And then notice the second expression, and the head of the woman is the man. Notice again, the head. And then thirdly, and the head of Christ is God. Now, in order to understand this, we need to highlight this little word, head, and understand how it is being used in the verses here and the ones that follow. Sometimes, when it is used, it refers to your literal head, the thing that sits on top of your shoulders, your cranium, this, your head, okay? And you'll find this as you read down the passage when it says, his head. Or, her head, that's what it's referring to. So as you read it and you see his head, her head, then it's referring to this. Okay? When it's the head, it is referring to something that is symbolised, symbolic. So sometimes it refers to a literal head in someone's shoulder and shoulders. And then on other occasions, here's we saw it in verse number three, it is referring to a symbolic head. Head. The word has been used symbolically. And it is being used to refer to authority and administration. Let me give you a couple of examples that may be a bit easier to understand. In Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 8, it says this For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. Now, when we use the word head in that connection, what we what we say, the head of Syria is Damascus. Now, Syria is a country and Damascus was the capital. So that verse is saying the authority in the Syrian nation lay in Damascus. 
That was where all the administration of the nation took place. That was the centre, that was the hub, that was the seat of authority. It was in Damascus for Syria. And so it puts it this way, the head of Syria is Damascus. Now we would say, for example, the head of state. We use the word head in that connection. And we're referring to our nation state as the person, or the head of state, as the person with ultimate power, ultimate authority, and from which the administration of the state takes place. So we speak about someone being the head of state. So the word is not being used literally there, it is being used symbolically. Let me show you another example this time in the New Testament, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 10. It says, ye are complete in him, that's the Lord Jesus, which is the head of all principality and power. Do you see it again? All power, all principality finds its authority and its administration from the Lord Jesus. He is supreme. So he is the head. Now, why is that important? Because what happens with our literal head when the church gathers symbolises what we believe about our symbolic head. Okay? So what we physically do with our head symbolises what we believe about our symbolic head. Now, God does establish and God is a God of order in his creation. And we see this in verse 3. We'll come to it in a second, but just to get this point. And in various ways, God has established structure, administration and order in creation. Creation is not chaotic. God did not design it that way. God would not have us live that way even today. For example, he is a God who establishes government amongst nations. Romans 13 verse 1, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. So God is a God of order, he's a God of structure, he's a God of administration, and he sets up and he casts down governments and administrations of the nations. In marriage, God is a God of order. Ephesians 5, verse 22 and verse 23. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the saviour of the body. Now, just to say this, God is a God of order and administration in all spheres of his creation. There should not be chaos. Now, what he states in verse number three is this. There is a universal principle at work within God's creation. And it's a principle of submission. A submissive principle between man and man, between man and God, and even between God and God, within the Godhead. There is a submissive principle. And that submissive principle, or principle of submission is the way that God has designed order in his creation. So he says the head of every man is Christ. Now we know that Christ is the head of the church, ultimate authority, and from whom all administration flows. But actually, 
within his creation, this is true, the head of every man is Christ. He is also the ruler of every man in the universe, every man in the world, ultimately will answer to him as the supreme power and authority and administrative authority in the whole of creation. We as Christians voluntarily submit to him and own him as such now. In a coming day, those who are not Christians will bow the knee before him and every knee shall bow, Paul wrote. Every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. Everyone will acknowledge that principle, that the head of every man is Christ. Here's the principle. Every creature under the authority of Christ, he rules. But then notice this, the head of the woman is the man. Now, there are very few people who've got a problem with the first statement. And there's a significant amount of people who've got a problem with the second. The head of the woman is the man. Not husband and wife, male and female. And he is saying that man has authority over woman. In God's creation, that's the structure, that's the order. Man must recognise that God has given him authority not to dominate or abuse, but to accept it and to rule as God would have him rule. With all the responsibility of that administrative role. And the woman must realise that in any relationship she has been given the place of submission. There's the principle. The head of the woman is the man. Now I'll come back to that. Now the third statement, the head of Christ is God. Now we're so glad that this third statement is in there because it helps give context to the first two. It may well be that what I've just said is objectionable to the ladies amongst us. But you can understand why. This principle may be objectionable to you, but it was certainly not objectionable to the Lord Jesus. It may well be that you hate the idea of the man being the head of the woman. But listen, the head of Christ is God and Christ loves that principle. And Christ willingly and faithfully lived out that principle while he's here and you could see it. This is the authority of love. Not of violence, not of abuse. The authority of love, which in our sinful world is a concept that's so hard to grasp because whenever someone gets into a place of authority and becomes the head of anything, it seems it goes to their head, literally, and they become abusive in that position. So men abuse women. People in government abuse those who are their subjects. People in relationships and communities flaunt power and authority and abuse it and destroy our concept of the authority of love. 
But we see Christ loving the church, Christ giving himself for it. And in that respect, the church is his subject. We also see God loving his own son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We see the Lord Jesus submissive to the Father as an obedient son. Not that Christ was ever inferior to his Father. He said, in fact, I and the Father are one. So let us understand that when we speak about the head of Christ being God, it's not a hierarchy of importance, but it's an administrative structure that God has put in place in his universe and that the Lord Jesus gladly submitted to. Not as an act of inferiority, but as an act of equality. I and the Father are one. If you want to deny the middle expression, then you must deny the other two. You cannot have a kind of selection here where you scrub the middle one and you keep the other two. And if you accept that the head of Christ is God, and when you go through the Gospels, the Lord Jesus said it often enough. And if you accept that the head of every man is Christ and the authority of Christ over men is surely unquestionable, then again, you must accept the middle expression. If you accept that Christ loves men to the extent of even giving himself to die for them, if you accept the intimacy of relationship within the Godhead and the equality of that and the mutuality of that and the respect that was there, yet the Son submitted to the Father, then surely you can take these principles and apply it to that middle expression whereby the head of every woman is the man. And so the woman must act as the son acted and men must act as God acts towards his son. It is not an abusive expression. Now then notice in verse 4, he says, Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoureth his head. Now he's going to speak about a necessary symbolic display of headship. And he's going to speak about it in the context of a local church. Now, when he speaks about praying or prophesying, that is a general description of what took place when a local church came together and gathered together. Not all men audibly participated and stood up and prayed or prophesied, in fact, none of the women audibly prayed or prophesied when they came together. We know that from other scriptures where Paul instructed the women not to teach and the women to be silent when the church gathered. So not all men are audibly doing this. Certainly the women are not audibly, but some of the men would be audible. But the question as to whether it's audible or inaudible is not the question being answered here. They are all participating because when they all gather together, whether one man is leading in prayer, the whole church is praying. Whether one man is prophesying, they are together in that as they hear the word of God being brought to them. So with that in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 16, the New King James Version says this, when he's thinking about speaking in tongues without interpretation and the confusion that that brought, 
He says, otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say? So he's saying, listen, when a church comes together, gathers together, and there is this spiritual exercise that he describes as praying and prophesying, speaking to God and speaking for God. When that is taking place, the whole assembly is involved in it. You know, when a prayer meeting takes place, it's not just the man who's up praying who's praying. And that's why we should all, male and female, say amen at the end of a prayer. Because we are saying that we are with what's being said. We are in agreement with what's being said. And what's being said has been an expression of what is in all our hearts. We have all prayed together. When someone gets up and teaches the word of God and speaks for God, which is what prophesying is, it is not the same as new revelation from God. Some of the prophets did bring new revelation from God, but most of them just reiterated already revealed truth and brought it to bear upon the people of God. When someone is speaking for God to the local church, then the whole church is involved. You shouldn't be sleeping. You shouldn't be kind of going on Facebook or whatever you're doing, your phones, pretending you're taking notes or anything like that. We should all be engaged, actively engaged with what is going on so that we are all involved in the prophesy. Not just the man who's giving it out publicly. Now he'll deal in chapter 14 with who speaks audibly, who is to be inaudible, and all of the kind of working out of that in a local assembly gathering. But here he's bringing the principle. And the principle is when this praying or prophesying takes place, a brother should have his head covered, uncovered, sorry. If he has his head covered, he dishonours his head. How to sow confusion. If he has his head covered, he dishonours his head. So his physical head is not to be concealed. Now mind you, that was radical. That was far more radical and unpalatable than what he had to say to the sisters. The Jewish people would have been up in arms about that because you see the men covered their heads in their worship. So what he's saying to the men is, you need to uncover your head. And that would go against cultural norm for the men. That would be a challenge for them. They would have to take the little thing, whatever you call it, and they would have to unclip it and put it to one side to actually uncover their heads. And so when he's speaking about head covering and head uncovered, it was as much a challenge to men as it was to women. And mind you, you don't need to go far back until you see the pictures of, you know, the old local assembly gatherings and the men coming in their retrailways and all the rest of it. And then they would stand there, you know, and they would come in and take their hat off. They'd uncover their heads when they were gathering together. So he says, listen, if you have your physical head covered as a man, you are dishonouring your head. In what way do you dishonour your head? And what is this head he's speaking about? Well, he's already defined that in the previous verse. That would be Christ. Christ's authority is symbolically <coughs> being covered. It's symbolism. So Christ's authority 
which ought to be recognised in the church more than anywhere else on earth, should be symbolised by men with their physical head uncovered. It speaks to a picture of Christ uncovered, Christ's authority supreme, Christ on display symbolically, for the head of every man is Christ. Is Christ. So you see the symbolism. You see what the symbols matter. Symbols matter a lot in this chapter. We're going to see that. It brings down disgrace on Christ as his stated headship is not displayed amongst God's people. But then in verse 5, notice this, that every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, dishonoreth her head, for that is even all one as if she were shaven. Now again, let me just say, he's not concerned with the issue of audible or silent participation. That comes later in chapter 14. There is participation. But he, she's, he says here that if a woman uncovers her head, now it's a converse scenario to the man, obviously. So the woman's literal head should, if it is uncovered, it will bring down disgrace on her symbolic head, which is man. So you can see the picture. Here's a man and here's a woman. This man has a literal head, this woman has a literal head. He's told us that the woman's and the women and the men's heads, physical heads, are symbolic of Christ and men. So Christ must be displayed, the man must have his head uncovered, displaying his head Christ, and the woman must have her head covered because the head of the woman is the man and man must be covered when the church gathers. His authority is not supreme, his authority is not absolute, Christ's authority is supreme, Christ's authority is absolute. He says then, for if she will not do that, that is even all one as if she were shaven. Listen, if she takes the place of a man in respect to the symbolism of headship, it's the equivalent of taking the place of a man in her general appearance. That's how it's seen by God. Now, some say that a woman's hair is her covering because it conceals her head and so forth. There's all sorts of arguments there, and I won't go through them, but it just doesn't add up. He is speaking about a covering on top of a woman's head and saying the woman must have her head covered in order for the symbolism to be effective. Now then in verse 6, he's going to explain what that shaven expression is at the end of verse 5. Now I do find it interesting that the New Testament distinctive between a man and a woman is not clothing here but rather it's here it's here so he said listen if you're going to take the place of a man symbolically and you're not going to cover your head when the church gathers when there's praying and prophesying going on if you take the place of a man by uncovering your head then you may well as well take the place of a man in your appearance what is that that's to have your long hair off and to have your head shaved he doesn't say anything about dress there. 
Now he expands it in verse 6. For if the woman be not covered, let it also be shown. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shown or shaven, let her be covered. In order for us to see this from God's perspective, just think about a woman. A woman will not and not expected to within most cultures, I think, to take all her hair off. That would not be a normal thing for a woman to do. It would not be normal in the natural realm for her to remove her hair, to have her hair cut or to have her hair shaven. It would seem to be disrespectful to do that. For example, if you think about uh, cultures not so very long ago, if you remember back to what you read about in the history books when the Nazis occupied France and Paris was liberated by the Americans and the French people hunted down those women who had collaborated with the occupying Nazi forces and they wanted to shame the women. What did they do? They shaved their heads. That's what they did. For within that culture, it was seen as a shame for a woman to have her head shaved and to, to shame her, that's what they did. And you find that within cultures and that's what's being referred to. And what he's saying is just this, if a woman does not and would not take the place of a man in terms of her appearance, then she ought not symbolically to take the place of a man by uncovering her head when the church gathers. Then in verse 7, he says, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head. Now he's going to give reasons why the man should not cover his head. Now this is interesting. He says, for as much as he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. Now, you know, I looked at this in some detail because this is a tricky part of the chapter to understand. You say, well, it's all been tricky, but this is tricky air. In what way is man the image and glory of God. In what way is woman the glory of the man? Now remember, there's a very similar expression used of the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus was the greatest man ever to walk upon earth. And in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, it speaks of him in this way, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Now, although lesser than Christ, man, as opposed to woman, still is the image and glory of God. Now, Paul never expounds these phrases. He assumes his Corinthian readers knows already what he means. And what does he mean? You know, Paul is using in grammar terms a present active participle, which is to say that man is the image. Not that he was, not that he used to be, not that he was in the Garden of Eden but fell and is somehow less today. He says, presently, as I write, man as opposed to woman, and there's the distinction, man is the image and man is the glory of God. Well, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and verse 27, you read this, God said, let us make man in our image. Now, at that stage, he wasn't making a woman. He was making a man. 
And he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, what does that mean? Well, man was the final creation. It's interesting that only man was stated as being in the image of God. None of the other creation ever had that expression applied to it. Only man was given dominion over all the earth. Prior to the creation of man alone was their divine counsel. Only man was explicitly stated as being created male and female. Man as a whole person, both physically and spiritually, is in some sense like his maker. And Paul here is making a contrast between man and woman. I thought about that. In what way is man the image of God? Although, again, it's something that is perhaps found to be unacceptable, the Bible does teach us that God is masculine. Now, I didn't say male, masculine. There's a difference between masculinity and maleness. Now, just follow this with me, if you would. God's masculinity does not just come from the pronouns used of him. He, his him. These are used of God. But that's not why he's masculine. That's an expression of his masculinity. The Bible overwhelms us with masculine models and images and offices and roles, most of them drawn from family or from government or from the military. And they are all used about God to express God, to to show God. God is the father, not the mother. God is the son, not the daughter. Christ is the firstborn among many brethren. God is the kinsman redeemer. He is the husband of Israel. He is the bridegroom to the church. All masculine. Outside of family relationship, God assumes other offices and roles which are masculine. God is a warrior. He's the Lord of armies. He teaches King David's hands to war. He's a king, not a queen. He's the king of kings. He is a judge, an enforcer of righteousness, a punisher of the wicked in society. He is a priest. He's our great high priest, so he could war. These are all masculine roles, offices, and descriptions. Listen, God is not our mother. He is our father. Now, a local congregation of Christians can be referred to in the terms of being a mother. The New Jerusalem is referred to in terms of being a mother, but not God. Now, masculinity is not the same as maleness. To speak about a male signifies biological gender. Maleness arises out of concrete, tangible, biological, physiological characteristics. Masculinity, on the other hand, is a concept which encompasses not only males, but other things which are not biological at all. A ship, for example, is given a gender. We use genders in relation to things other than people. We describe things in terms of masculinity and femininity. And we apply those terms to impersonal objects which we construe are masculine in character or feminine in character. For example, feminine is applied to ships, it's applied to the earth, and it's actually applied to the moon as well. 
It's not applied to God. God's always masculine. And in the incarnation, the masculinity of God finds expression in the manhood of Christ. And God became what? He became a male. He became a man, not a woman. In the incarnation, it wasn't female, it was male. And the masculinity and maleness joined together in Christ as a man. But God the Father is masculine, even although he was never incarnate here upon earth. He still is masculine. That masculinity of God must not be seen as derived from men. So we mustn't look at God and say, God is like a man. We must look at men and say, men are like God. God is masculine and we are like God in his masculinity, not the other way about. Listen, there's so much rubbish talked about God in relation to gender. And people can't cope with the masculinity of God. So they say, well, God is a mother, God is a spirit, and there's no gender in the spirits. Therefore, we can't, we could call him she or he and mix up our pronouns. Not biblical. None of that is biblical. So we understand, I would judge, that man is made in the image of God because man is masculine and God is masculine and manhood is an expression of that and a demonstration of that masculinity in God's creation. And not only the image of God, but also the glory of God. Now I like this. God has not manifested, or God has not made something that's disconnected from himself. You know, it's not like God's made a train set that's nothing like him. You know, it's not that he's tinkered with this world and he's made something, but, you know, he's got no connection with it or no, he's got no relationship to it. God actually made men, and men are the glory of God. Men are the demonstration. Men are the exhibition of God. So if you want to know things about God, men can teach you things about God. Mankind in that sense. He created man who is a manifestation of himself. We are a tripartite being, body, soul and spirit. We learn of the Bible that God is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And God created man like that. God created man to have dominion and so forth. We were created by God, we were created for God, and therefore we are the glory of God. Now this is not the idea of being created to give glory to God, he doesn't say that. Women give as much glory to God as men, that's not the issue. This is not what we render to God, this is what we manifest as coming from the hand of God. So while women, for example, in the Bible were not required to attend the three annual feasts of the Lord under the old covenant, they did. They worshipped as much as men. They gave glory as much to God as much as men. And here, when he says that man is the image and glory of God, he's not using the inclusive masculine. He's not referring to the word man, including man and woman, because the whole point of the verse is the distinction between man and woman. But then he says this, the woman is the glory of man. Not to glorify man, but this is a statement of contrast with men. 
And what he's saying is that these gender distinctions go beyond the physical differences that exist between a man and a woman. And he now explains what they are in verses 8 and 9. In what way is woman the glory of man? Verses 8 and 9 teach us. Look at the word for as explanatory connection. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Now that's a very simple thing. In the beginning, God created man. And from man, he created woman. You remember the spare rib story and all of that, you know, man going to sleep and you got to watch him sleep because we well, you know where he has a woman beside you. And there was Eve, so you have Adam and Eve. And how did that come about? God did not create Eve in the same way as he created Adam. He did not breathe the breath of life into Eve in the same way as he did Adam. But from Adam, you get it in Genesis 2, 21 to 23, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and he closed up the flesh instead thereof and the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Why? Because she was taken out of Man, For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. So that the woman came from the man. Woman is the glory of God because she came from man. Man is the, woman is the glory of man. Man is the glory of God because he came from God. Woman is the glory of man because she came from man. Then in verse 9, secondly, neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. In the beginning, woman was not only formed from man, but also for man. New American Standard, Genesis 2.18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Pregnant pause. Suitable for him. Why did he make a woman? To help the man serve God. That's why. Because God recognised that he would serve better with the help of a woman. And in verse 10, he brings a conclusion and says, For this cause. Verses 8 and 9. For this cause. Because woman came from man. Because woman was created for man. For this cause ought the woman to have power. A symbol of authority. A head covering. When the assembly gathers, when the prayer and prophesying is taking place. Because there ought to be an acknowledgement by the woman of the creational order established by God right at the beginning. For a woman to uncover her head is not only dishonouring to the man and ultimately to Christ, which it is, but it's also a denial and rejection of what took place in Eden. Genesis chapter 3 verse 16. God prophesied that this would take place. He said to the woman, thy desire shall be to thy husband. Now that word desire is not a good word. It's actually uh, a bad word. 
And it means really that you are going to want to usurp the authority of your husband and you're going to be in conflict with your husband and the response of your husband will be in Genesis 3.16, he will rule over you. And that word rule is not a good word either. There's the battle of the sexes from the Garden of Eden. And from the beginning it was said after the fall, women are going to have conflict with men and men are going to subjugate women both of which is not as God intended. So he says, for this cause. And then he says, for this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Well, now the angels involved. An angel, an angel. <coughs> now, I don't know what you think about angels and whether you think angels are flying about or whatever, but what we know is this about angels, that angels are very interested in what takes place amongst God's people. Now, there are two ideas here. It could be number one. Angels observe and are educated by what they see amongst God's people. Or, we ought to be educated by what we read about angelic behaviour. You remember way back what happened when that divine creation or order was usurped by angels and they sought to change places and they sought to rise up from their allocated position in the divine creative order and God cast them down. Should we not learn the lesson of submission from angels who did not submit and were judged? Or could we educate angels, whichever view you take, the angels are an important factor for us to consider when we think about the subject of headship and head covering. Now he's got a balancing statement in verse 11, very quickly. He said, nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. Now he's got a lovely balancing statement. And he says, listen, just to make sure there's no abuse of this and no misunderstanding, just to make sure this is not kind of taken by men and used to be dictatorial or abusive in any way, he wants to reinforce the equality that exists between men and women. Because there is not only equality, there is absolute necessity for each to depend upon other. He says it very simply. The man can't exist without the woman and the woman can't exist without the men. Now, if you go into any house, you will find that men find it very difficult to exist without the women of the house. You go in there and you can tell, you know, washing's piled up and all sorts of things going on. And the house just doesn't function right. And men don't seem to function right. And then it's also the opposite way as well. And uh, the woman doesn't function so well if the man is not around. Because men and women need each other. They're not independent of each other. Women can't just say, as our society is saying, let's cut men out totally, and a woman can marry another woman and have children in all sorts of strange sorts of ways. That's what's being taught in our society. That's unbiblical for so many reasons. But it's also unbiblical apart from the basic sin involved in it because men and women need each other. Can't just cut one gender out of any equation. So he says, listen, there's an equality, there's an interdependence in the Lord. 
And where the Lordship of Christ is acknowledged, then men and women are equal. And that is more so than any other context that existed when Paul wrote. It was radical. The, you know, society didn't teach that men and women were equal in Paul's day. Far from it. A woman didn't have the rights that a man had. But, you know, Paul is saying, listen, in the eyes of the Lord and amongst those who own the Lordship of Christ, the man needs the woman and the woman needs the man. And in fact, he will now say it in this way in verse 12. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman. Now, without getting complicated let me put it this way, that the woman was taken from the man in the beginning and men have been taken from women ever since. It's creation and procreation and men and women are equally important in both. So then he comes in verse 13, judging yourselves. Is it comely? Is it right? Does it have the right appearance that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Now, when you come to this last section, I'll go through this quickly from verse 13 down. This section has been taken and it's been spoken out of context so many times in so many different ways. What he's now going to bring is, an, is, a, is a point established from nature to establish the same thing that he's been saying. Okay, so he's now turning to nature. Okay? So he's going to say, you make a decision, you come to a conclusion yourself. He's spoken about apostolic tradition, he's spoken about Christology, he's spoken about creation, he's spoken about angels, now he speaks about nature. And he says, judging yourself, is it comely, is it fitting, is it appropriate, is it right for a woman to pray unto God uncovered? Now that's not just a verse extracted out of context, it's in the context of what's gone before. It's the context of coming together. It's the context of praying and prophesying. And now he just says, praying. And he says, is it appropriate? You judge. He said, look to nature. Doth not nature, in verse 14, tell you that if a man of long hair, it's a shame unto him. Now, here is a natural distinction between men and women that's observable from nature. A man... With long hair equals shame. There's that within us that understands and knows instinctively, if you allow me to put it that way, that that is not right, that is wrong. It does not enhance masculinity, but it undermines it. So that when you see a man with long flowing hair, then it is not a masculine sight. Nature teaches us that. Man does not need to cover his hair because man's hair as it should be does not manifest his glory. And you just need to look at our hair and, uh, you know, the odour is balding and it's patchy and it's grey and it's all that kind of stuff. It does not signify, demonstrate or enhance masculinity. Man's hair is not for that purpose. But when you come to verse 15, it says, but if a woman of long hair, here's the difference. It is a glory to her. To her. Long hair equals feminine hair. It's that which enhances femininity. It's that orthodox, instinctive understanding that long hair is feminine. 
and is an enhancement of that femininity. It's a glory to her. To her. Now when you think about that, it says then, if a woman of long hair, it's a glory to her. Her hair is given to her for a covering. That's a different word than is used earlier in the verses. That's not a word that has to do with concealing, but rather it's a word to do with manifesting, revealing, showing glory. So a woman has long hair. It enhances her femininity. It displays her femininity. So there's the natural distinction between men and women. And we don't usually have a problem with that. We can understand that in appearance, men and women look different. Masculinity and femininity appear differently in the natural sphere. What he's saying is this, when you come into an assembly, there is that which demonstrates the difference before the eyes of God and of angels, and it's the woman with her head covered and the man with his head uncovered. It shouldn't be a strange concept to us to have different appearance, as we have naturally. So then... Men have short hair, or not long hair, and the women have long hair. Now, this is not to do with uncut hair. This is not to do with all these things that are said about this. This is to do with the distinction in appearance. Long hair is feminine. Long hair is not masculine. Now, here's a quotation just to conclude. By covering her head, the woman covers man, who's represented symbolically by her literal head. She also covers that which enhances and displays her femininity, her glory. And by so doing, Christ is symbolically placed in his rightful place with all the focus on him. All the focus on him. Symbolically and naturally. Our focus is on Christ. You say, well, that was all very well and cultural and complicated perhaps. And you say, well, you know, that's really just for Corinth. That's not for modern day. You know, no other Christians I know do this. Listen to what Paul says in verse 16. If any man seemed to be contentious, you're going to fight about this and resist it and argue about it. Mark this, he says. We have no such custom. Neither the churches of God. Not just Corinth. Every other local church this was not something restricted to Corinth this was what the churches of God practiced Paul says listen you're actually being contentious about what is established practice amongst local churches and you're doing it but I want you to understand the spiritual significance of what you do let me just bring this to a conclusion by applying it practically there so then, there is the kind of technical information in that chapter. There's the reasoning, there's the explanation. It's not theology, but that's the idea. It is not some freak idea from a brethren church. It's not something that's just Victorian. What we're actually doing is we are putting into practice something that has spiritual significance. And there is not the prescription in detail as to how to do this. You know, I was over in Indonesia, as you know, and in Indonesia, it's interesting to me when they speak about head covering, they all wear the most, it seems to me, the most unattractive, sort of, they all have the same head covering. You know, it's, they must have bought a pack of 20 or something. They've all got the same thing. 
So all the sisters are there and it matches nothing. It's just a white kind of thing on their head and it seems disconnected to the rest of what they're wearing. And when we're talking about head coverings, uh, local bre- one of the local brothers and I were talking about it, and he was, uh, he'd been put under pressure a wee bit by another visitor to, to, you know, the women to start wearing caps and hats and all this kind of stuff. And uh, he said uh, no. Not because he could point a chapter in this. This was his reasoning. I find it interesting. He said, when you start to make the head covering an accessory, you lose the significance of its meaning. Now that's wisdom from someone in Indonesia, a young man. And they're starting from a point of no tradition. So then the sisters put on that which matches nothing. Because it's not meant to match anything. It is meant to display headship. He said, I don't think that would be a problem for us, he said, because hopefully we understand why, even if it's a cap or something like that. He said, but I'm thinking down the road and I'm thinking in a few years' time. He said, I think that could become a problem for us. And I didn't say to him, I said, you know, wiser words I've never heard. And I think that's why it's become a problem for us. Because the head covering, for most of us as we've been brought up, has not just been a head covering, it's been an accessory. So you lose the spiritual significance. Folks say to you, get your hat on before you leave the house and make sure it's a massive thing and it's all part of a wedding and all that kind of stuff. And we laugh about it and, you know, and not many people cover their heads in that fashion nowadays. I understand that. But, you know, with that background, then perhaps the idea was you wear a hat to go to church and you begin to lose an understanding of why you cover your head. Now, the Bible doesn't say, don't wear a hat. The Bible doesn't say, don't wear a berry, don't wear a cap, you must wear this. The Bible doesn't say that. So you can't impose that. That would be a man-made tradition. But what I think we should do is understand this, that the head is to be covered, and it's to be understood why, and it's not an accessory just of an outfit. There's a spiritual decision made by a sister to cover her head. And, you know, whether it's a barrier or whatever is not really the issue. But it's an understanding of why. And why is it then? Because it's symbolic of that which matters to God. The symbolic display of the supremacy of Christ amongst his people. To make sure that men who are so vocal don't get above ourselves and think we're all important. But you sisters are showing by covering your heads that we are subject to Christ. And so there is that hierarchical order of creation which ought to be displayed amongst God's people. There's an angelic interest or lesson to be learned from angels. Angels are involved in the equation. There's the whole idea of the distinction between male and female and the display of that distinction, both naturally and then also when we come together again, we should not be reticent to display the distinction. We're not all the same. We ought to display our femininity and our masculinity in God-given ways. And why is that? Because men are the image and glory of God and women are the glory 
I know some of that's been quite heavy as we've gone through that. And then, you know, some 